You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Amen, amen, wonderful. Well, we'll sing a little bit more at the end of our time together. If you'll grab your Bibles, please, and turn over to Acts chapter 8. That's where we're going to start tonight. So I have a tendency in my preferences for whether it's entertainment, music, movies, those kinds of things. I have, I have a preference for um, things that tend to be a bit more moody, ethereal, even, even dark. The word dark could be described. So when I think about movies that I like, I like movies that are intense. I'm not always looking for a comedy. I like comedies, but a lot of times I like movies that are intense, right? Movies that have like uh, dark action scenes from war and I'll just, I like, I like gangster movies, things like that, right? Like things that sort of like the underbelly of society, right? I don't know if that's a confession or not, but I do. But, but the point is, is that I like things that are a little bit darker, moody, right? Film noir, little, real dark shadowy things, old Al- Alfred Hitchcock, those kinds of things. And then music, like all growing up, I always gravitated towards like the blues, right? Things that were just a little bit darker. It wasn't like country music and la-di-da-di-da, happy stuff. It was like the blues, like the guys who were depressed. Or like, you know, music that was in the minor key. I always felt that stuff emotionally. I really loved that type of thing. And, and, and even spiritually, I know that I have found myself attracted to more of the, and, and it's funny to say this in a spiritual sense, but some of the darker realities of the spiritual life. Because the truth is, is that being a follower of Jesus is not all just rainbows and sunshine. There are dark parts of life because we're in sin, because humanity is what it is, broken, separated from God. And so you can't even in your pursuit of Jesus and, and your, your study of God's word and his will for our lives, you can bend toward things that are darker in a sense. And so in, in one way... Um, I would think of myself that Good Friday, as they call it, again, very, very ironic name that they call it Good Friday, because it's, it's quite possibly the worst day in all of history, right? Like the greatest crime committed against humanity is the day that we're celebrating or remembering at the very least. And, and so because of that darkness, I, I would think to myself, that's something I should be more like in tuned with or attracted to even. But here's the thing. The more I get to know Jesus and the more I, I start to wrap my mind around this advantage that you and I have of knowing the risen Savior, the less I can connect myself to things that are dark the more I see Jesus for who he is and the more I get to know him and the joy of salvation, thinking back to or embracing things that are more dark or, or, or moody, those kinds of things, it's harder and harder to do that. When we talk about Jesus, if anyone knows anything about the story of Jesus, the full arc of that story, his birth, his life, his death, 
But then also his resurrection, if you know anything about the story of Jesus, it's hard to get connected to something that's dark because the whole story is hope. The whole story is joy. The whole story is freedom including the dark parts. So even when you stop and consider something like this day, the Good Friday, the death of Jesus, when you know Jesus for who he is now, it's simply a part of this joyful story of salvation that we're called to proclaim as followers of Jesus. And so there's this aspect to the death of Jesus that, yes, while it is possibly the worst day in all of history, there's also something to the death of Jesus that perhaps might even categorize it as the best day in human history. It's sort of like the best worst day in all of human history because it leads us to the gospel. And so take a look at Acts chapter 8 not traditionally a place where we would go to on Good Friday necessarily, but I find this to be compelling for one very specific reason. There was a man here who scripture records as the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip, one of the first um, deacons of the church, was also an evangelist. He was one who went out and shared the gospel, shared the Lord with people. And there's this wonderful story about this interaction between Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. And let's read this here. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. First of all, take notice that as it says that this man was reading the prophet Isaiah, this wasn't him just sitting quietly by himself reading through the scroll. He was reading it out loud. If you ever find yourself having trouble devotionally spending time in the word, go to a place where you're not embarrassed that someone's going to hear you or just determine that you don't care if someone hears you and read the word out loud. It keeps your mind focused on what you're reading rather than simply trying to read it in your mind and then getting distracted by 10 million thoughts. This Ethiopian eunuch is such a good example for us in so many ways. But it says that he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Philip runs over and heard him reading the Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? Verse 31. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? 
and he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. This is one of my favorite stories in all of scripture for so many reasons. But here's the thing I want us to consider tonight. How is it that a man reading the Old Testament prophet Isaiah and specifically the the, the text that he was reading, how did that bring him to a knowledge of Jesus and ultimately salvation? Well, turn over to Isaiah chapter 53 with me, if you will. Old Testament, Isaiah 53. And I want to show you how the Old Testament prophet Isaiah could lead someone to salvation. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1, says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah the prophet speaks of the Messiah that was to come. Verse four continues, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You can hear in the prophet Isaiah speaking in the future tense, speaking about one who was to come, the Messiah. And what does he speak of him? He says that this man who had done nothing wrong bore your iniquity, bore my iniquity, bore upon himself in his death the sin of all mankind. Now let's continue on and read what it says in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, 
I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. How is it that the Ethiopian eunuch reading about something so unjust and so tragic that a man who, who didn't deserve to die, who, who, who wasn't guilty of anything, somehow gets put in the place by his father to bear this guilt and shame and the punishment for other people's iniquity, for other people's transgressions and sins. Well, the beauty of this, of course, is that Philip gets to explain to the Ethiopian eunuch, hey, the prophet Isaiah, here's who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus from Nazareth the one who just upset the entire world as he declared that the kingdom of God had finally come near to his people and that it was time for people to repent, to turn away from their sin. Why turn away from their sin? Because he was going to bear their sin. See, why do you and I need to turn away from sin? If we're forgiven... If God forgives us and, and knows our hearts that we believe in Jesus, we believe in his death, that his death paid for our sins, why should we bother? It's dealt with, right? So if we go ahead and sin a little bit, what's the big deal? Hey, the gospel says we are to repent, to turn away because the kingdom has come near. God's kingdom has come near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. In God's kingdom, can there be any sinful thing? No. God in his perfection cannot abide sin. And so you and I, being brought near to God's kingdom through the work of Jesus Christ, should pursue holiness and value righteousness. And then Hebrews says, where there is sin, where we have fallen short, we have an advocate on our behalf but our pursuit should be to do what Jesus said. Repent. Turn away from sin. Give up sin. Why? Because of everything that Isaiah just described that he was going to go through, which then Philip gets to tell the Ethiopian eunuch, here's the one who went through all those things. The very Son of God, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, went to the cross innocent of any sin, of any iniquity, and yet it pleased the Father for the sake of the freedom of his people, for the sake of eternity, so that we could be accounted righteous, righteousness imputed to us, our sins forgiven. It pleased the Father to give up his only Son so that we could be made right with the Lord. So with that knowledge, let's turn to Matthew's gospel, chapter 27. And we will read the accounting of the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 32. It's interesting in this study, you can go to any of the accountings of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all give this account of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus as well as the resurrection. The Gospels, as you know, perhaps, they, they differ in some of their accounting of different events in Jesus' life, but they all 
speak of the crucifixion and the resurrection. These two things are formative in terms of our faith. I was trying to think about um, what the most important day in all of history was. I put Easter, Resurrection Sunday, as the most important day in all of history. That day when Jesus rose from the grave. Because without the resurrection, we're lost. If Jesus doesn't rise from the grave, we're just a bunch of fools. That's what scripture tells us. If, he didn't, if he's not actually alive, there's no point in what we're doing. So I, I put the Resurrection Sunday as the greatest day in all of history. I don't know how to rank Jesus' birth and his death. I think it's like 2A and 2B. I don't think there's a third. I just think it's the number one, the resurrection, and then I think parallel to each other is Jesus' birth and Jesus' death because both were essential to our salvation. Jesus coming, God in the flesh, but Jesus also dying for our sake. So with that, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 32, his accounting of the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, they, called this, they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over jesus saw the earthquake and what took place they were filled with awe and said truly this was the son of god and there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. And among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud 
and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. It's worth your time to go through and read the accountings of the crucifixion in each of the Gospels. Just devotionally, just spend time. There, there's such detail uh, in Luke's accounting of the crucifixion. He, he notes that Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. In John's accounting of the gospel, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I, I commit my spirit and then gave up the ghost, gave up the spirit of life as he died. The crucifixion was an act of submission from the Son to the Father. It pleased the Father to crush him. Now we have to understand, it doesn't mean that God was happy to have Jesus go through this. But what it means is that the end result of Jesus dying on the cross is what God saw rather than just the abuse of his son at the hands of those who did not believe in him. God sees the big picture. If there's anything I'm learning right now about our Lord is that there is a picture that is far bigger than we can see right in front of us. That whole idea of forest for the trees. There's this entire forest that God can see and that he understands and we just simply look at one or two little trees in our understanding. God saw that this great crime against humanity, the worst day in all of humanity, his son being unjustly killed, was also the greatest day in all of history. Because on that day, what took place is that death died. Death died on the cross. Sin was defeated on the cross. And we get to look forward and we know the end of the story, so it's, it's good for us to also remember that what we're actually pointing ourselves toward and, toward and orienting ourselves toward is the good news of the gospel, which is the resurrection of Jesus, which we'll get to celebrate together on Sunday morning. But for our purposes tonight, it's to understand that even the death of Jesus, as dark and somber and moody as this experience is to recollect and meditate on, it's important for us to set in our minds how even the darkest events in life all gear us, orient us, point us toward the gospel. That even in the darkest of circumstances, perhaps it, especially in the darkest of circumstances, that is where people find the good news of Jesus Christ and are saved like the Ethiopian eunuch reading the most tragic story in all of history and yet being brought to Jesus in such a way that he believed upon him and was baptized and was saved for all of eternity. You, you look at that story in Acts chapter 8 about the Ethiopian eunuch and you think one of my favorite parts of the story is that after that occurs, after Philip shares the gospel with him, explains the scroll of Isaiah, takes him down into the water, baptizes him, then all of a sudden it says that the Holy Spirit takes Philip away all of a sudden, he's, he's just gone. And the Ethiopian eunuch kind of just goes, okay, 
and just heads on his way praising the Lord. He's not even worried about time travel or whatever else is going on at that point. That kind of just pales in comparison to the fact that he's just heard the good news of Jesus. He's saved, he's been baptized, and he's just excited about what that means for his life. He doesn't even pay attention to the supernatural crazy thing that just happened. How beautiful and how powerful that is. That even in that, that mysterious and, and powerful work of the Holy Spirit, the thing that gets the most notice is Jesus and his salvation. I know I've had you turn to a lot of scriptures tonight, but one more. Turn to Mark 14, if you will, the gospel according to Mark In the chronology of the events that took place during Holy Week prior to Jesus' crucifixion and then the resurrection, this event that we read here in Mark chapter 14 would actually have taken place last night um, when Jesus met with his disciples in what we call the Last Supper. He was celebrating Passover with his, with his disciples. It's good for us to read this and recount this because it goes hand in hand with what would take place less than 24 hours later, which is the crucifixion of Jesus. In Mark chapter 14, verse 12, it says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to Jesus, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God of God in instituting what we call the table of communion here at the last supper Jesus leaves for his disciples an instruction an ordinance some would call it a sacrament it's a place of union with Christ Communion and baptism are the two recognized sacraments of the church. And the reason that they are called sacraments, sacred things, holy places, is because it's where we are unified with Christ. 
When we take of the bread, notice that Jesus says, take and eat. This is my body. This is a controversial subject, and, and this isn't the place to debate this or have this conversation. But Jesus says, take and eat this. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and drink. This is the cup of the covenant in my blood. Jesus uses flesh and blood to drive the point home to his disciples that, hey, when you are in me, when you believe upon me, we are united. We are together. In the same way that when you're baptized, when you believe upon Jesus for salvation, the Bible says that in the waters of baptism, you are buried in the death of Christ and you are resurrected to newness of life in Christ. You're united with Christ. It has always been considered a mystery to understand fully what communion is. Many people simply want to say that it's just a remembrance because that language gets used by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, that it's just a remembrance. This is just a symbol of something that it represents. Well, let me ask you this. If Jesus simply meant that his body and blood were symbols, why did the Pharisees want to kill him when he said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood? If it was understood that it's just a symbol for us, why was it such a serious thing? The mystery of it is this, things that we can't understand fully and can't fully grasp. The mystery of it is this, Jesus says, this bread that I'm giving you, it's my body. Take it and eat. Remember what I'm gonna do for you. This juice, this wine that you drink, it's my blood. Remember that my blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Does it really become the body of Jesus and the, and the blood of Jesus in the form of bread and juice? It's a mystery. But here's the thing I know. It's more than just bread and juice. It's more than bread and juice. And maybe that's just for our memories. Maybe it's just for our hearts. But it's more than bread and juice. It's more important than that. And that's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he would say to give worth to the table of communion. In fact, he was, he was correcting the Corinthians as we've studied before. He's saying when you all come together, you're not actually taking communion. He says when you're coming together and celebrating the Lord's Supper, as it was, it was done in the early church, that's why they got together was to celebrate the Lord's Supper. He says you're not actually doing it because you're not honoring it. You're not respecting it. One starts to eat ahead of time. The other one goes hungry because they don't have any food. Someone gets drunk on the wine. He goes, you're not actually honoring what's going on. In fact, he says, because you're not honoring the table of communion, some of you are sick and some of you have even died because you haven't given worth to the body and blood of Jesus. And he reminds them, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Paul says, for I received from the Lord, Jesus told him directly, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now mark this, 
1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, for us to go out and proclaim the gospel to anybody, it's not simply that Jesus thinks you're amazing and loves you and has the so loves for you and will do anything for you. No, no, no. What we're proclaiming in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that he died for you. That's why we come to the table of communion to proclaim the death of Jesus because without the death of Jesus, without the worst day in all of history, we don't get the greatest day in all of history, which is the resurrection of Jesus.